0: And for while you're still standing, if you'll turn to Zephaniah chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1. It's page 789 in the Bibles around you. Zephaniah 3, starting in verse 1. I'll read for us just verses 1 through 5, actually. Sometimes it's good for us to slow down. So Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Would you hear God's word as it's read? Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Lord, would you, by the work of your Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wondrous things out of your law. Would you even correct us where needed. Make us a people that are pure for your own possession, zealous for good works. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series in Zephaniah, uh, we talked last week as we looked at chapter 2 and, and Zephaniah moved through these different enemies of God's people and the judgment that was coming upon them. And the illustration we used was that uh, uh, perhaps in certain films or stories that you read, uh, there's many stories, right? If, if there's a bad guy or a villain in a story, most stories, you're pretty safe to bet that before the movie is over, before the book is over, uh, that bad guy or villain is not going to escape unscathed, right? Uh, they are going to reap the consequences of their evil and their wickedness. And, and movies that do this well, um, there's an enjoyable aspect of this. When you see a bad guy, especially in a very uh, sort of black and white portrayal in a movie, it, it, it's satisfying to see uh, the bad guy sort of gets what's coming to them. There's a reason that resonates with us. God has made us in his image Um, We see injustice all around us, and in this world, it can seem like the bad guys don't always get what's coming to them. It can seem like they live a pretty happy, healthy life. And so we resonate with these stories that remind us um, that justice is coming at least one day. Now, what's interesting is these same stories, some of them are written in such a way that certainly you're at first supposed to say, oh yeah, the bad guy is getting what's coming to them. Uh, but some stories offer a chance to self-reflect. Some stories you come to realize painfully that you might have something in common with the bad guy of the story. Sure, maybe you're not robbing banks and, and, and doing what they're doing, but it, you resonate internally with something in the wicked that you see even portrayed in the story. So that in the course of the story, by the end of it, you're, in a good way, you're caused to self-reflect and say, am I really living the way that I should be living? Why do I resonate with this villain? What's going on in my own heart? Well, today Zephaniah does somewhat of the same thing. Uh, He is going to move from the judgment of the nations as even a comfort to his own people, but then he's going to call them to self-reflect. In other words, the story doesn't end with good. The bad guys get what's coming to them, uh, but it goes deeper. The point of the message this morning is simply this. God judges the nations to purify his people. Let me repeat that. God judges the nations. He brings judgment and calamity upon the the nations, then and now, in order to purify his own people. In other words, God's doing many things in in the calamity he brings on the nations, but one ultimate thing he's doing is he has an eye for his own people, that their hearts would be his. His that they would do away with idols, that they would serve the one true and living God. He wants to open our eyes. And so let's look very briefly today. If you're following along in the outline, um, uh, for some of you, this will be very unsatisfying. We'll look at the first two points in your outline, and um, we'll look at the third point next week. The first point is this. Uh, God brings judgment on the nations, number one, to correct corruption. To correct corruption. If we say that God judges the nations in order to bring about a change in his people, we sort of get specific in point number one. It's to correct the corruption uh, that God sees. And we'll look at verses 1 through 4 in a moment uh, to think about this. Uh, But again, just to remember where we are in this study of Zephaniah. In chapter 2, he has laid out the judgment upon the nations. He has sort of uh, gone all the way around the compass. He goes to the west, uh, to the land of the Philistines. Uh, He he labels cities in Philistia like Ashdod, like Gaza, and he says God's judgment is coming. God will make this place a desolation one day. And then he moves from west to east uh, to Moab and Ammon, uh, and he says that their fate will be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he moves south, far south to Cush, this uh, country even further south than Egypt from Israel, and says even there God's judgment will be felt. And then he moves to Assyria, and really verses uh, 13 through 15 of chapter 2 is, is all about Assyria. And Assyria was the powers that be of the time. They had taken the northern kingdom uh, not long ago. Um, they, were, they were the ones in power. They had. Uh, if you look on a map, uh, you see Israel as this tiny little dot, and then you see the kingdom of Assyria uh, just expanding into what we think of even into Asia and, and those countries. And so this was Assyria, and he speaks against uh, Assyria, against the north, desolation. Um, And so he lays out the judgment of the nations. And uh, perhaps we touched on it last week, but uh, let me give you uh, one of... um, Each week we've been looking at different tips, right? When it comes to reading the prophets, it's a genre we're not as familiar with. Um, And so it's good to have a few tools in the tool belt to say, how do we read this genre of scripture? What's going to be helpful to us? And tip number five today is to apply with caution. Uh, To apply with caution. Right when we're reading 1 Corinthians or a New Testament epistle, we should apply with caution too, but there's pretty much a one-to-one correlation as God speaks to the New Testament church, we're a part of the New Testament church, and so as Paul calls us to apply something we apply it. Although there's certainly some work to do there as well. If you think of Zephaniah though, Zephaniah chapter 2 and specifically when it speaks of Gaza for instance, we have to apply with caution. In what sense do we apply what's happening in Zephaniah 2 and 3 uh, to what we see in our newsreels today? If you're curious about this question, Mike Hill helped me get a simple video put up um, online, and if if you want to sort of deep dive into it, that will spend more time. But let me just very briefly say uh, that there's a no and a yes to the question, does Zephaniah 2 apply today? Uh, First, no. It it doesn't apply in a one-to-one correlation. Uh, I believe we shouldn't be looking at certain verses in the prophets and lining them up exactly with days and times that we're seeing today. Uh, there are some key differences between uh, God's people then and now. Uh, there is uh, this aspect that we've talked about of a now and a not yet, that uh, for the people of Zephaniah, even for them, Uh, They would hear these prophecies against Gaza, against this land of the Philistines, and most of that would not be fulfilled within their day. They were looking to the day of the Lord, the judgment to come, when uh, not just this place, but all wicked nations would have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So what was future for them is actually still future for us as well. So we need to apply with caution. Not everything applies one-to-one, but also, yes, it does apply in other words, God still brings calamity. He still brings judgment, even on the nations around us. And he has purposes in doing it. And we've looked at some of those. It's to comfort his people. that justice will be done. Uh, it, is, um, uh, it is to bring condemnation on any land or people or nation, which, by the way, is all of them now that would uh, set themselves up against the Lord. And then what we focus on in this sermon and, and next week Uh, and perhaps primary, is that he would open the eyes of his people. That's what he wanted to do for the people of Zephaniah. That's what he wants to do for us. And so let's dive in. Chapter 3, verse 1. Watch what Zephaniah does here. If if you move back with me to verse 15 of chapter 2, Zephaniah was clearly prophesying against Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. And, and he calls Nineveh in verse 15 of chapter 2, uh, this is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become. A lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. And if you're the people of God, you're perhaps rightly saying, yes, like this is, this is Nineveh. They, they took the ten tribes, the northern tribes. This is the oppressing city. They are against the Lord. Praise God, justice will be done. And you'd be right in saying this. So then you get to chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. What are you thinking? Yeah, Nineveh. Down with Nineveh. The oppressing city. Yes, the city that oppressed us, that took our brothers and sisters in the north, that takes whatever it wants. Verse 2, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. Yes, Assyria has turned itself against the Lord. She does not trust in the Lord. And you think, wait a minute. Trust in the Lord, that's God's name, Yahweh. Of course she doesn't trust in the Lord. She serves her own gods. What's going on here? She does not draw near to her God. What do you mean her God? God isn't the God of Nineveh. And you start to realize, wait a minute, we're not talking about Nineveh anymore. Her officials within her are roaring lions, her judges. Verse 4, her prophets are fickle. Her priests profane what is holy. Verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. What city are we talking about now? We're not talking about Nineveh. We're talking about Jerusalem. We're talking about uh, the very place where God said that he would dwell with his people, uh, where the temple was. Uh, we're talking about Judah, this southern kingdom. And if, if you're the people of God, you're, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I was okay with the judgment on the nations and on Nineveh, but now it's coming home to roost right here in front of me. What Zephaniah is doing, we see elsewhere in Scripture as well. Remember, Remember King David, when he committed adultery and, um, and murder, uh, he, uh, the prophet Nathan came to him, and how did he convince David? He told him a story of injustice. And he laid it out in such a visceral way, and he sort of had David say, what would you do to this man who committed this injustice? And he, I would put him to death. And what did Nathan say? You are the man. And it opened David's eyes. Uh, in, a, in a powerful way. Jesus does the same thing in his parables, right? Like Matthew 21, uh, when he speaks of uh, the vine dresser and these uh, wicked tenants that come and they don't take care of what they were supposed to and instead they oppress the people and, and he turns to the Pharisees and says, what's to be done with them? And they say that they should be put to death. And what does Jesus say? He flips it and says, you are the one who has rejected the cornerstone, Right? All throughout Scripture, we see this pattern, and Zephaniah is doing the same thing, because God wants to open their eyes. Can you see that God wants to open your eyes, even by the judgment that's coming around us? Well, what's the specifics of the judgment upon Israel, upon Jerusalem and Judah? Verses 3 and 4 tell us, uh, first, there is political corruption, verse 3. Political corruption, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing till the morning. Those leaders who should be upholding God's law are instead doing violence to it. Those who should be bringing peace and shalom to the people of God are devouring the people. They're fulfilling Psalm 14.4, "'Have they no knowledge, "'all the evildoers who eat up my people "'as they eat bread.'" And do not call upon the Lord. I've been reading back through uh, 2 Kings, and and, and I've sort of caught right up to this time period. There's a few good kings along the way, but for the most part, the officials, the kings, the rulers, are destroying the people. They're leading them to idolatry. Uh, They're building foreign uh, high places for the people to worship. They're encouraging wickedness. And in doing so, they are destroying their own people. That's why Judah is on the brink. That's why Zephaniah is saying judgment is coming. Jerusalem will fall. It's too late. The political corruption is very real at this time for the people of God. And so we use our tip and we apply with caution today, right? Right? Uh, First, we say, no, there's not a one-to-one relationship of these verses to what we're experiencing. America is not, to the New Testament church, what Israel was to Old Testament believers. There's not a one-to-one correlation by a long shot. But yes, we see wickedness around us. We see leaders oppressing instead of leading. Uh, We see those driven by greed, corruption, selfishness. Agendas that don't have the people in mind, that actually destroy the people in their charge. That devour instead of protect. And what do we know from these verses? God knows. God sees. If judgment starts in, with the people of God, then it certainly applies then uh, to the world at large and her governments. It affects how we pray and we pray, like Psalm 10, that wickedness would be stopped, especially that wickedness that is destroying people. We pray for the repentance of those who right now don't serve Christ. We know of stories of those who, who once were pushing for things that destroy people, who repent and come to believe and, and find grace in Jesus Christ. If he could save us, he could save then, uh, And we pray that. And so we see the political corruption Verse 4, we see the religious compromise. The religious compromise. Look at verses, or just verse 4. The prophets are fickle, treacherous men. The, her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. We've seen rulers and kings, as it were. Now we see the prophets and the priests. And what's the state of affairs for Judah at this time? It's not better than the rulers. The prophets are called fickle. Is that a good designation for a prophet? A prophet who is supposed to stand before the people of God and say, Thus saith the Lord. Like Zephaniah, who unabashedly is looking them in the eye and saying, Judgment is coming. How will you respond, people of God? Will you repent? Will you believe? Will you put your trust in Yahweh? But no, these other prophets are fickle, which means they're treacherous. Uh, They're actually insurgents because they're not speaking the word of the the Lord to the people. Uh, We see from the other prophets that they're often prophesying things like, oh, no, 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 judgment's not coming, people of God. Look, we have the temple. We have the temple. It's where God dwells. Keep giving to the temple. Build the temple and we'll be fine. We have the temple. Everything's okay. You don't have to worry. By doing this, they're treacherous. Uh, because that's leading people in their charge to not repent. They're giving people what they, want to he- what they want to hear instead of speaking the unabashed word of the Lord, which comforts, which corrects, which would lead them to repentance. And the priests are no different. Instead of leading by example and holiness and piety, instead of leading God's people in worship, instead of like their job is, 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 is to uh, put guardrails, protect the holiness of, of the temple and worship and sacrifice, they instead are profaning what is holy. Instead, they're doing violence to the law of God. Can we apply this with caution today? We're not in a one-to-one relationship. We're not in a theocracy like Israel where prophet, priest, and king are, are, are really the... Um, there is no distinction of, of church and state, etc. However, can we not think of religious compromise in our ranks today? From how many pulpits do false gospels and man-made traditions hold sway and bind God's people to harmful and unnecessary burdens? In how many pastors' studies is abuse perpetrated against the very sheep that are meant to be protected and cared for by the shepherds of the church? In how many session meetings is lack of character or compromise hidden instead of held accountable as it's meant to be? Pastors' elder shepherds need to heed the warning of Zephaniah 3 They need to open their eyes and come back to the true gospel and true righteousness. Or they or we will have to answer one day to the chief shepherd who said, if you love me, feed my sheep. Uh, To the chief shepherd uh, who said, whoever causes even the least of these to stumble, it would be better if a millstone would be tied around their neck and thrown into the ocean. As a side note, uh, Our church here is not perfect by any stretch, but we do strive for accountability. That's a huge reason why Amy and I were drawn to the system of government that we have, which is not perfect. But people have got, I am accountable to you. I am accountable to my session. I and the session are accountable to our presbytery and even to the denomination. And we welcome that accountability. If you ever have a concern about me or an elder, would you find another trusted elder to go to? If for whatever reason uh, you feel you can't do that, you can even go up to the presbytery. Uh, we would welcome it. Uh, 1 Timothy 4.16 is always seared into my mind, um, and most weeks I pray through it. Paul tells Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's not just that we teach the right things. It is. That's essential. Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, Paul says. I pray for this every week. But what's what's the ultimate answer? If If God is seeking to deal with a religious compromise, if he's seeking to, cor- to correct the corruption that he sees in, in the Old Testament, but even we could apply it today, what, what's the answer? Well, point number two uh, brings us uh, to it. N- number two says to purify by his presence. Uh, to purify by his presence. You, you notice a shift in verse five, or a temporary shift. We'll, we'll get back to sort of the judgment on Jerusalem next week, but Verse five says, "The Lord within her is righteous; he does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame." You see the contrast, right? Uh, the uh, The unjust rulers were said to be prowling around in the morning; uh, they leave nothing till the morning. Uh, The Lord has said to bring forth his justice every morning. They profane what is holy. He within their midst is righteous and holy. Uh, The unrighteousness of these false leaders was spreading like gangrene. Uh, Because especially in the Old Testament, unholiness is something that spreads. It's contagious. And... That's what we see here. It's it's from the rulers. It's spreading to the people. But the Lord within her is righteous. The Lord within her is righteous. Remember in Matthew 9, 21, the the woman with this persistent bleeding, she, she thinks, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And she touches his garment and she is made well. In other words, Christ the true prophet, the true king, the true priest. He's not contaminated by the unholiness. In fact, he's not even neutral. He cleanses, he purifies his people, all those who would come to him in faith. Titus 2.14, he comes to purify for himself a people for his own possession This is the ultimate answer. Uh, God's people at the time, the unjust rulers, uh, it it wouldn't just be a matter of them saying, okay, I'm just going to do better. I'm going to just try to be more just. No, they would have to come in repentance, looking forward to the day of Christ, finding forgiveness, and then living according to God's law. And this really is the gospel. Right here in Zephaniah, the Lord within her is righteous, he does no injustice. It's the gospel of Christ who, unlike these unjust rulers, is Christ the greatest prophet who speaks to his people. He is not fickle. He does not tell the people just what they want to hear, but he preaches the truth. And it's more than that. He is the truth. He does no violence to the law, but fulfills it. He preaches God's word even at the cost of his own life. He preaches repentance to those who would turn and hear him. He speaks clearly to us the will of God for our salvation. And so if you're hearing his voice today, you're hearing the voice of the great prophet, Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, who who says, I know my own and my own know me. I speak and they know my voice. That's the work of the Spirit, opening your heart to hear him. So if you would hear Jesus Christ today, would you repent and believe in him and his gospel? That he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That he died for the sins of his people, even for sins as wicked as uh, being an unjust ruler. Any who would come to repentance in Jesus Christ would find forgiveness because he took the punishment upon himself. He is the great high priest Unlike the priests who were profaning what is holy, Christ himself is the holy of holies. He does not profane what is holy, but he makes what is holy uh, what is profane. He, he purifies it. He makes it holy. He cleanses his people. He sanctifies his church. He cleanses her by the washing of water with the word. Uh, he prays constantly for his people. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So that he takes seriously what we've even talked about, abuse and justice happening in the ranks of the church. And yet, he also, when he thinks of his church as a whole, is cleansing her, is bringing people to repentance, is bringing people to earthly consequences as needed. He is cleansing his church, protecting her. He alone can make you clean. And so receive Christ or remember his mercy, people of God. See what life can be like without the burden of sin and guilt and shame on your back. And that can only come by turning to Christ, the great high priest. He's also the great king of kings, a ruler who does not oppress but rules with love and a fatherly discipline. He is not a roaring lion devouring his people as bread, but he is the lion of the tribe of Judah, protecting caring for, feeding his flock, making his people safe even in a dangerous world, even as they face affliction, even as they're in the midst of a people perhaps experiencing extreme judgment, he can make his people safe. His church officers may fail or fall into sin, but he never fails. The Lord in your midst is righteous this Christ, this prophet, this priest, this king. That's why God brings judgment for them on the nations and even on Jerusalem. That's why he does so now for many purposes, but he wants to turn your heart to this Jesus, this prophet, this priest, this king. We'll look next week or begin to look next week at point number three, which is to awaken his people. We're going to start in verse 6 and see he, he really presses in on um, the indictment against Jerusalem. But if, if you look in verse 7, by way of preview, he says, Surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. God's heart is that the people of God, verse 8, would wait for him. That they would see these judgments coming and turn to him. So people of God, you live in an interesting time when God's judgment, even calamity, is falling around you. I'm sure you feel it to varying degrees depending on the day. I'm, I'm sure the year ahead of us is not going to help. But what's God's purpose? Always, it's condom- to summarize the last couple weeks, it's condemnation and warning for those who would continue resisting Him. It's comfort for those who trust in Him. It's to purify his own people, even in the midst of these experiences. Next week, it's to awaken his people. Next week, it's to gather the nations that someone repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And so we live in troubled times. My question for you is, will you waste it? Is the goal just to get through it? Or is it with eyes open wide, with humility, saying, Lord, shape me to be who, you've, who you want me to be. Cleanse me. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the ancient paths. People of God, Jesus ready stands to cleanse you. He is full of pity, love, and power. The Lord in your midst is righteous. Let's turn to him together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. That your word points us to Jesus Christ himself. I pray that today... uh, all the hearts here would be knitted to Christ Jesus, that we would willingly bow to our King, that we would willingly sit at the feet of our great teacher and prophet, that we would find cleansing and forgiveness and, and the lifting of our burdens from our priest. And it's in his name that we pray.